0: in your bulletin. You will not need that during this message. But <laughs> I've given it to you on the back side of what we gave out yesterday, last Sunday. Uh, I've put on this side uh, all of the big theological terms that go in heresies that went into uh, where we get the definition of calcinon today. So I know you're, you're just dying to just go through and look at all those. Gnosticism, Monarchianism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, right? So, But I am not, I give those to you so you can take that home for your further reflection. And we are going to, in essence, be um, uh, dealing with the topic of Chalcedon right here, the Incarnation. But I'd like you to just for now just fold that Stick it under you know wherever you put it in your purse or whatever, and we'll we'll just um, try to go from the scriptures themselves this morning, and try to walk you through the importance of the incarnation. We're in the middle of a three part series on the incarnation. I've been going through the book of Genesis, and we'll return to Genesis in January. But for right now, we're in a three-part series. The first one last week was on the goal of the incarnation, which was knowing God. Today, we're going to tackle the details of the incarnation, and next Sunday, we're going to talk about the application of the incarnation. Uh, That'll be application in terms of what difference does it make in your daily life, but it'll also be the application in regards to the Holy Spirit uniting you to Christ. So. Anyway, that's where we're heading. It is possible to become a Christian, to live your life, and then die, and never think deeply about the details of the incarnation. It's possible to do that. As long as you accept that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, you can be saved. If that is true, and it is true, why study the incarnation? Why take this time to try to bring in the details of the Incarnation? Well, the book of Hebrews commands us to fix your eyes on Jesus. 1 Corinthians, we are told that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another simply by beholding Jesus. Jesus. Now, we're not encouraged to look at pictures of Jesus. You will not look around here and see any pictures of Jesus in this sanctuary. We are being encouraged by Scripture to ponder and reflect upon who Jesus is. His essence, His character. Personally, as I have studied the Incarnation... My faith has been encouraged. I've actually been more confident as I approach God because of my understanding of the incarnation. That he is able to save me, even me. The cross declares to us that we need saving, but the incarnation declares that Jesus is able to save you personally, even you. I'm going to look at four verses in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. So if you want to turn there, you can. And then we're going to immediately look at Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. So you might want to get both of those together. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How often do you personally feel misunderstood? Do you wonder sometimes whether there is anyone Who truly understands your struggles. Even the ones that you experience on the inside. And even if they could understand. What can these other people do to help you in your problems? (laughs) Do they really even want to strap on your problems? These are the questions that we ask when we're all alone. And when you think about a baby in a manger some 2,000 years ago, do you not sometimes wonder, what does this child have to do with me and my current struggles? You may be tempted to think that his life was so very different than mine. How can he understand me and my particular issues? Jesus was not rich, but neither was he destitute. He was a carpenter's son. He was the firstborn of several siblings. He came from an intact family. And he had parents who loved him. Jesus lived the life of one particular man. How could he possibly understand you in your problems and your challenges? And yet the scripture tells us very clearly. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He felt the same struggles of temptation in the same way that we do with one exception. He never sinned. And I am asking this question. How is it possible that Jesus understands you fully? That he understands your struggles, your temptations, your weaknesses? And I am not sure that I can fully explain that to you. But I am going to try. On the one hand, Jesus is vastly different than us. He didn't commit sin. I regularly commit sin. Until he hung on the cross, he didn't live with a sinful nature every day. On the cross he did. When the full weight of your sin came upon him and he became sin and bore your sin, Guilt upon himself. But the Bible tells me that Jesus understands me. He doesn't just know sin generally, He knows my particular struggles, He knows the things that are bothering me personally. And in some sense, that won't be fully clear to you until next week when we get into the application of the Incarnation and the reality that the Holy Spirit is united to you. Because that's really where the rubber meets the road. But that'll have to wait till next week. No one knows you like Jesus. No one knows your particular weaknesses like he does. And what is more, he doesn't look upon your weaknesses with contempt. You know what contempt is, right? What is your problem? Get over it. We are told that he looks upon your particular weaknesses with sympathy. And because you can have confidence that he knows your particular struggles, your particular weaknesses, you can come before the throne of grace with confidence. You can draw near to him. Knowing that you will receive help in your time of need. And I'm here to tell you that it is in part because of my Uh, wrestling with all of the details of the incarnation that in my thinking, in my reasoning, I am more fully convinced that he absolutely gets me. And so for the sake of illustration, I want you to imagine something that may appear a bit strange. I want you to try to imagine... Jesus coming in your flesh. Your particular flesh. That goes for women or men. That Jesus came in the flesh of Ann Hope Thomas. Now, just to be clear, that actually is a heresy. Uh, Jesus didn't come in any one person's flesh. He didn't like invade somebody's person. That's that's true. So don't get me wrong there. But I do think it illustrates a point. Because what we do with the incarnation is we say, yeah, he took on human flesh, but it wasn't anything like my human flesh. He wasn't messed up like I was messed up and messed up. I want you to think about your struggles, the things that you look at yourself and say, I am not proud of this. I hate this about myself. And you think, Jesus didn't. No, no, no. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have taken on my flesh. Think about if, if he only had one person to save in the world. It was Jim Pate. And he comes and he takes on Jim Pate's flesh. Jim says, oh, but but, but, but my temptations, my struggles, my, my issues are too much. Could you really say that if he took on your flesh, Jim? Now, what if, you know, if he took on Jim's flesh at the beginning, Jim would have never sinned. But what if... He took on your flesh, and for the first large portion of your life, he just observes and feels and experiences all that you're going through. Your every confusion, your every frustration, your every failure, your every weakness, such that he knows you better than you know yourself. And then your life is over. And I know none of your lives are over today. You're still here living and breathing. But imagine your life is over. Sort of like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, right? Only you don't die in the normal way. You die in the way that Jesus chose to die. Since Jesus has taken on your particular flesh and blood, it is you who are hanging on the cross. You are dying on the cross with Jesus. And it is here at the cross that Jesus says, I am now beginning to overcome your sin. Your particular sins. Your life is over. It has ended. I'm not just crucifying some of your sins. I'm crucifying them all. He's not just bearing the punishment for your sins. He is slaying your sins as you are strapped to him. And then, when he lay breathless in the tomb, imagine your body lifeless. And then, Jesus on the third day rises up from the grave and transforms your Old flesh into something entirely new. And then he takes you all the way to the highest place in heaven. And now you sit on the throne of glory with the God of glory if you will start to think this way, I believe you are getting a little bit closer to what Jesus has done in the incarnation. If you have any sense of the holiness of God, you should be saying to yourself, no, he should not take on my flesh. How can he who is pure light ever unite himself to that which is dark and evil? God's holiness is a burning fire. The whole reason why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden was because God could not tolerate sinful humanity in his presence how is it possible that this same God could take on human fallen flesh? It's unthinkable. He takes His light and joins it with our darkness. It's the only way. It is the only way that your darkness could be overcome. Darkness can't fix darkness. Darkness can't make itself light. The only way you can be made light is if light comes to you and joins himself to you. And that is what Jesus has done in the Incarnation. You ever wonder why God did not create Jesus out of the dust of the ground? I mean, he created Adam out of the dust of the ground. Why couldn't he just make another man out of the dust of the ground? Someone who was like Adam, but not one of Adam's. No, the Savior had to be born of a woman, of a seed of the first Adam. Jesus was taking on fallen human flesh. And of course, when we look at a little baby in a manger, you think, oh, how sweet, how pure, how good. But think about Him taking on your flesh. This is, this is why... We get this, right? The, the Jews of old got this, that Jesus lived. When, when he's lying at table with a Pharisee, and, a, and a, a prostitute comes in, and starts weeping, and placing her tears on Jesus' feet, and wiping his feet, and washing him, what does the Pharisee say? Oh, if you were a prophet of God, if you knew anything of the holiness of God, you would not let this woman touch your feet. You see Philippians 2 says have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ Jesus though he was in the form of God perfect light perfect glory and all of that's true he empties himself I don't even know what all that means I know he doesn't cease to become God in any way but he doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant In other words, he is joining himself to those who are in the form of human fallen humanity. That's what he does in the incarnation. And if he does not do this, none of us are saved. Just as Jesus was in the form of God, he is and will always be in the form of man. See, we casually accept these truths. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. But I'm telling you we don't see the magnitude of what is going on. Every bit of your salvation depends upon Christ being in you and you being in Christ. Bringing you together with divinity. Divinity. Now we'll talk more about the mechanism of this next week, which is faith. We're not just naturally in union with Christ. We have to believe in Christ. have to trust in Christ. And that union is is brought about. But I'm telling you that it is the details of the incarnation that convince me that God can actually unite himself with me. If it wasn't for the incarnation, I would still question whether or not the perfect and pure God could ever unite himself with me. But in the incarnation, it is already done. Now, usually when I teach the heresies and the doctrines of the details of the incarnation, I do it going through a church history class. And we look at this heresy and we look at this one and we follow it through history. And I'm not going to do that at all today. Might be time to go teach another Sunday school class on church history, but not going to do that at all today. I'm just going to try to collapse 400 years of history into a few moments and take you through some of the scriptures that will hit the highlights of how the early church struggled like a pinball going from this side to this side, back and forth, trying to understand the implications that the God of the universe takes on human flesh, that is is what they're struggling with. That is what's going on. And so we'll try to do this. Hopefully it won't be too confusing, but you have your sheet, right? You can take this home with you, and you can look at all that later on. But I will try to go through this looking at various texts of Scripture. Now the first battle... The first battle in the church was over the whether or not Jesus was fully and truly God. Now you can imagine why this is so important to the early church. Why it was such a struggle. Because in Deuteronomy we are told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know that there is only one God. Jesus even says, I don't even, I mean, the Father even says, I don't want any other gods around me in the Ten Commandments, First Commandment. So here comes Jesus and he's walking onto the scene and he's doing things that only God would do. And people are looking at him and they're seeing the miracles and they're seeing the teaching with authority and they're saying, how can this be? And even in his own hometown, some people say this terminology, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Michael Bell's a good guy, but if he started claiming that he could be one with God... I'd take offense at Mike LaBelle. In John 10, when Jesus says a statement, and I'll say it here in a minute, the Jews actually pick up stones to stone him. He says, why are you guys stoning me? And they say, because you claim to be God, and yet you're just a man. The words that he had said is, I and the Father are one. Mark 2, there's a paralyzed man that comes into Jesus' presence. And he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Any good Jew knows that only God can forgive sins. And they say, You have no authority to say they He says, Which is harder, to heal the paralyzed guy or to forgive his sins? Of course, the truth is to forgive the sins. But in their eyes, he can't heal a paralyzed man and he tells him, Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus says, I'm only doing what the Father is doing. That could go on and on and on. Primarily, Jesus portrays himself as the object of our faith and as a reasonable object of worship. When people worship Jesus, he never stops them. The scripture says he's one true God. But, but here's what the church was wrestling with. At the same time that Jesus is doing things that only God can do, he says things like, the Father is greater than I. W- wait a minute. Are you God or are you not God? And they began to wrestle with that. How is it possible to be equal with God and, the, and yet for the Father to be greater than You? And then, Jesus says things like this, I don't know the hour when I'm coming back. How can you be God who's omniscient and not know when you're coming back? Luke 2 tells us that Jesus grew up. He learned things. If you're God, you know everything. How can you be learning anything? And the Bible does not even try to work out the answers to those questions. But I'm telling you, they are not questions that were manufactured by the church. They are there in the text of Scripture, and they are there for us to ponder. Now, the church started struggling through these solutions. Now, one solution that was later deemed a heresy was that Jesus was just a man, but at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and he lives with him during his earthly ministry and then he leaves him while Jesus is on the cross. That's nice. But that's deemed a heresy. If Jesus had only had the power of God, he was not God. And if he was not God, you would be violating the first commandment by worshiping him rather than God. And the church says, the early part of the church with the, um, uh, the council of Nicaea, they basically say, he is fully God. Now, just so you know, there's another solution that occurred during this time. And that was that Jesus was a form of God. That the Old Testament, God the Father was a form of God. Jesus was a different form of God. The Holy Spirit is a third form of God. Kind of like water. Water can be ice. Water can be water. Water can be vapor. up, oh, it's not good enough. Jesus is not just a different form of God. There's another heresy that was raised up, and that was the heresy that flesh, human flesh, is so corrupted by sin that God would never take on human flesh. These were heresies that were there even during the New Testament period. 1 John says By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. You see, what Satan is trying to do more than anything else the reason why he, all these heresies develop is because he doesn't want the true God to actually join himself with true fallen humanity. Because if that can be separated, your salvation is taken away. <clears throat> The Council of Nicaea makes clear what Scripture already clearly revealed Jesus is truly God. He is the very same substance as God, and when you have Jesus, you have God. Now, it might seem strange, but once the Council of Nicaea affirmed emphatically, declared it, you know, without qualification, He is truly God, do you know what the next problem was? It just almost seems crazy, because this is where you started. The next question was, Well, maybe he's not really man. Isn't that strange? Oh, we now finally accept he's God, but we can't be man then. And the struggle that they had was, yeah, maybe he lived in the house of our bodies. But Jesus did not take our soul to himself. You know, kind of like the the pillar of God in the temple. It came down upon the temple, but you would never say that the pillar of God's presence in the Old Testament actually was united to the temple. But Hebrews again tells us, Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. You see, you struggle not just in your flesh, you struggle in your soul. That's where your struggles take place. That's where temptation occurs. And if Jesus didn't take to himself your soul, then your soul can't be redeemed. And under the sovereign direction of God, the church concludes that Jesus had to have not only a a full physical body, but he also had to take to himself a reasonable soul. Now, once you start saying, oh yeah, he is completely and fully human. He is completely and fully God. You know what the next struggle is? there must be two Jesuses. You got a divine Jesus, you got a human Jesus. Again, if you start having two people, you are now separating humanity from divinity. And as soon as you separate humanity from divinity, you have no hope of salvation. And they begin to struggle, this is the big struggle over, the, over Mary. And this is, you know, is Mary the mother of God that was the question they had hmm well I mean God existed way before Mary did so if you say Mary is the mother of God doesn't that sound like she's before God doesn't that sound like she's wonderful so they didn't want to have that but then if you say that Jesus or or Mary was not the mother of God she was only the mother of a man hmm that's not right either and so Chalcedon says correctly that, he, that she was the mother of God according to his manhood. See how they're trying to fight that down there? He was, it's a razor's edge. According to his godhood, the Christ was begotten before all ages. And in this Chalcedonian definition, they will over and over again say the same Christ. The same one, the same, the same, the same. And the reason why they're saying that is that there are not two Christs. And this is why your Bible says stuff that is just strange. I'm just going to give you two examples, but here's one Acts 20 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Does God have blood? No, he does not. He's a spirit. God can't die. And yet the scripture says that he obtained the church with his own blood. How do they do that? Because the divinity is united to the humanity in one person. And that one person means that you can take some of the qualities that only a man can do, like shed blood, and you can attribute it to divinity. Jesus, when they picked up stones uh, to stone him, said a statement Before Abraham was, I am. That's the opposite. Here is a human being that some of them watched grow up. They knew the time when he was born, and he says, I am before Abraham. They're taking the human uh, attributes and they're, pla- or they're taking the divine attributes and they're placing them on the human because the two are united in one person. And the Council of Ephesus in 431 emphatically accepts that there's only one person, there are not two Jesuses. You think that might be the end. The problem is, but when push comes to shove, if you've got two natures united in one person, it, don't you think that the divine nature would somehow overwhelm the human nature? So that the human nature is no longer simply human, but is something more than human? That's the next struggle. And this is where Kansadon is at its best. It says that this one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, is to be acknowledged in two natures. And here's the words. Inconfusedly, that means that the natures are not somehow mixed together. Unchangeably, that means that the two natures are not somehow added together to make a third nature. Indivisibly, which means you can't take out portions of the nature when the union takes place. And then it says inseparably. That means that they are forever united in one person. And he says the distinction of the nature's being by no means taken away by the union. Do you know why this is so important? Because when you get united to God, to Christ, you get united to Christ, you don't become more than human. You're always just a human. So if if, if union with Christ meant that he would overwhelm the human, then... That's not salvation. And we know that in the incarnation, but we also know that in our union with Christ. This is quick. But there, every detail of the incarnation and what is articulated at Chalcedon is absolutely necessary for your salvation. Jesus took on fallen humanity generally. But in doing so, for all who believe in him, he takes on your humanity particularly. You are not a surprise to him. Your particular struggles, even when they seem insurmountable to you, are not insurmountable to Jesus. He is able to strap you to himself. He is able to carry you to the cross. He's able to bring about your death. He's able to raise you to new life all the way to the holy of holies in heaven where you can behold the face of holiness. And I'm telling you that because he did this 2,000 years ago, I have confidence that he can do redemption in my heart. I don't know the particulars of your struggle here today. In some ways, as I am a pastor and I go through and minister to people, I feel like the problems that are around us keep getting larger and larger and larger, and maybe that's because we've rejected God as a culture. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, they've gone too far now, I, don't, I can't save them. We are called to take the light of the gospel even into the darkest hearts. You and I see Jesus dimly right now, as through a glass. But we do see him, and see him we must, if you are going to not lose confidence in him. I wish I could say that as soon as you leave here today, all of your struggles will be over. They will not be. But I do believe that in Christ, in faith in Christ, God has guaranteed that he will fix your every problem. Some will be fixed here and now, some will not. But when you stand with him in glory, you will be pure, light, As he is pure light. And let me just end with this. If you want to know God. If you want to truly know God. Do you understand that darkness can't know light. So if you want to know God. You must be transformed into light. Because only light can know light. And that's what Jesus is doing in the incarnation. He is his light coming down into your darkness to overcome your darkness so he can take you back up into his light and you can behold him eternally. That's the gospel. Amen.